I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. There are many paths to working on technology and software development. Some people get exposure when they're young, others through a high school class or college, others learn after they worked in other industries. Leah Peterson, engineer at Two Sigma, explained her trajectory from professional motorcycle stunt rider to software development. We also talked about cloud computing and Kubernetes, which is what Leah is currently working on. Leah also explained what Two Sigma is doing and how technology is being used in investment management. Before we continue with the interview, I wanted to tell you that I launched a new podcast. It's called The 5-Minute Mentor. In this podcast, you'll hear advice from prominent engineers, entrepreneurs, writers, artists, and more in five minutes or less. Check it out by going to mentors.fm or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Five Minute Mentor. Check it out on mentors.fm. Thank you. I'm here at KubeCon in Barcelona with Leah Peterson, engineer at Two Sigma. Leah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You've worked in areas like DevOps and cloud computing. We're going to talk about that, but before we begin with that, I wanted to take a step back and talk about your trajectory, which I found really interesting. You describe yourself as a motorcycle stunt woman turned developer. Can you talk about motorcycle stunts and what that was like? Yeah, so I've always been interested in motorcycles. And when I was in college, I got my first street bike. So I started riding casually with friends. And one day I saw someone do a wheelie on a motorcycle, which was the coolest thing ever to me. So I decided I wanted to learn and eventually found some people in Los Angeles who were doing motorcycle stunts quite seriously and discovered there was this whole subculture around motorcycle stunt riding. And it, I kind of say it's like how skateboarding was in the 60s and 70s, where there were just a bunch of people coming together and kind of doing a quasi-illegal activity, but like having an awesome time, like pushing the limits of their machines and learning all these new things together. So I got very into the community and the culture around stunt riding and it ended up, it was a hobby, but I, it was like a full-time hobby. So I was traveling and going to competitions and meeting people all over the world doing this and kind of organically started getting calls for jobs because there's not a lot of women who ride at a high level. So I thought I can make this a full-time job. Like I can't miss that opportunity. So I decided to try to do it full-time professionally and kind of started with a bunch of traveling and doing competitions and kind of developing a brand. And that led me to work with sponsors. So I was able to get a salary and a little bit of stability and then start working on bigger projects that eventually allowed me to ride all over the world. I lived in Europe for some time doing competitions and shows over here and then Los Angeles where I had an agent. And it was an incredible opportunity and a super fun job, but eventually I kind of like the cost reward benefit of 
potentially putting your body in great danger and then also being covered in bruises constantly. And so, you know, towards my 30s, I was starting to look for something that was a bit more stable, but still allowed me a lot of flexibility. And because I have interests in so many things. So I wanted a flexible job where I could explore a bunch of different things, potentially live anywhere in the world. And that's what eventually led me to engineering. Yeah. What I find interesting, just looking back to your motorcycle stunt days is that it's a clear example of what people say is sometimes don't do something for the money and you were like just doing the hobby and you were enjoying it and you know doing well and then the money came after that's a clear example of that i i don't know i, I really like it and the one thing i wanted to clarify is you mentioned you saw what was it a, a wheelie or what did you yeah, say can yeah. you just describe that i know it can be hard sure. in audio but just to get an idea of what that consisted of totally so i was stunting full-size racing motorcycles so like the motorcycles you see like zooming around the track like on their side and so a wheelie is when you take that motorcycle and you pop it the front wheel off the ground so you're just on that one back wheel yeah and I think this experience is valuable in a sense of you get some training and it can also translate to other fields, I'm sure, like in developing. So can you talk a little bit about the training it consists of or sort of the skills needed to be able to do these stunts? Yeah, I would love to. So this is something that was super interesting to me because, like I said, I saw that first wheelie and I was so intrigued, but for the life of me, couldn't really figure out the physics or like what was going on. And I found that a lot of people who could kind of do wheelies really couldn't explain it either. Like they're just kind of a personality that's like, I'm just going to try this thing and not really think about it. Whereas I'm much more methodical to how I approach things. So I was lucky to find these people in LA who had this much more methodical approach as well. So they were able to really break it down. And I mean, I think like anything, it's isolating the components. So like breaking the stunts down into their smallest components and then building. So you really have to decide like, okay, what is the first step here? What is the first skill I can master? And typically it's not very exciting. It doesn't really look like anything, but that's that first brick you have to lay to build from there. So that's, I mean, that's how I approach a lot of things in life. And it's not very fun at the beginning. It's not fun at all. Like you're just looking like an idiot out in this parking lot and people are like, what is she trying to do? And you're like, eventually this will be a wheelie. Just trust me, okay? <laughs> it's gonna be awesome someday. Yeah, and that does sound very general, and I could definitely see it translated to, you know, developing software. You start with the small blocks and not fun things, and then, yeah, later on you're building the systems, definitely. Let's talk now and fast forward to you switching to a developer career. I saw you went to the Ada Developers Academy. Can you talk about what this academy consists of? Sure. Ada Developers Academy is a year-long intensive course for women and gender diverse people. It's located in Seattle and it really targets people coming from other industries. So people who've had a career, who've had jobs and they're looking for a change. And like I said, it's intensive. So it 
requires that you don't have a job, that you basically just quit your life and commit yourself to learning how to code for this year. But it's a really amazing format. So it's sponsored by Seattle companies. And so it's free if you get admitted. The sponsoring companies cover your classroom portion. So you'll spend, I think it's like six months in the classroom now. So that's full time in a classroom with, you know, 20 other people focusing on your learning. And it's web development. And then you will have an internship with one of the sponsoring companies. So after that classroom period, you have a five-month internship where you're really working full-time as a developer. And most of the companies take that very seriously where you're getting real work and real hands-on experience. And so your chances of getting a job offer from that sponsoring company are pretty high. And additionally, people also interview and get some other job offers on the table. So the job placement rate is quite high for this academy. Was there something unique about their approach to how they teach students how to code? I think they do have an interesting approach because it's supported by these companies who really are like, we want developers today. So they really distill the learning material into like, what are the critical skills you need to learn, right? You need to learn, sure, you need to know how to code, but you also need to know how to collaborate, you need to know how to use source control, you need to learn how to do code reviews, you need to learn how to do testing. So they really take this streamlined approach to teaching you, kind of giving you those nuts and bolts of like, what's gonna make you successful day one in a job. That's great. That's very interesting. And in terms of technologies, you mentioned web, but can you give some examples of technologies that you you can learn at this academy? I think the curriculum has evolved since I attended a couple years ago, but at the time we were doing Ruby, Ruby on Rails, some JavaScript, Node.js, and yeah, so they tried to teach a full stack approach. Okay. And I don't do this usually, but I want to take a step back again just to ask you about your time when you were studying sociology in college and then later on computer science and you did the Ada Developers Academy. But in terms of sociology, what would you say are some of the highlights that you learn from this field? Because I'm sure these are also applicable, you know, to all the other things you did in life. Yeah. I definitely have been really intrigued kind of using the stuff I learned in college about sociology, which is how people work together, how things influence them, how to, how change occurs. And I think that's been really interesting getting into tech and my personal journey getting into tech. So when I was looking to get out of motorcycle stunt riding, like I said, I wanted this versatile career. I wanted a job that was in demand where, you know, I knew I could find work and I, I wanted one with a high salary range. Yeah. And engineering absolutely checks all those boxes. But I think that there's kind of some social stigma around developing and who a developer is and what they look like and what they like. And I think that really held me back from getting into it because I thought I didn't identify with that. And also I didn't identify as a a quote unquote technical person. Like I thought of myself as a creative person, as a person who liked to make things and build things, but not necessarily someone who was limited to just a computer, I guess. And once I got into tech and I realized how amazing and creative it is and how expressive you can be, I really think there's a lot of language and stigma and stuff that we can start changing that hopefully will open it up and make it more accessible to more people. 
So are there, in the professional work environment, things that you learn when you were studying sociology that you see applied to the workplace? I think, actually, the stuff I learned in college, I don't think I apply as much, but Ada Developers Academy did an amazing job of preparing us for the, the realities of the tech industry, I guess, being a, a group of diverse people entering it. So they really did a good job of breaking down implicit bias and what to expect there. And kind of by defining these social problems or social blockers that we will likely come across in our career, I think it's made me um, able to identify them. And once you can identify it, you can start to think about how to solve that problem. But I think often a lot of the forces that affect diverse people in the industry right now, they're hard to pinpoint, they're hard to talk about, there's not a lot of language around these problems. And so you kind of internalize it and you think maybe something's just wrong with me. And that's unfortunate. And so I think the more we talk about the problems and give labels to them and say, look, this is a force that you're dealing with. This is a blocker that you're dealing with. Don't internalize it. You can ask for help. People have found ways to move through this or to move around it and also to break them down, like to begin to break down these blockers. So I think Ada did a great job of starting to define a lot of those things. And I've noticed them now in my career. And I think that I'm in a good place to, to work around them. And that's really interesting because you mentioned that the people that go to Ada Developers Academy already had careers in other areas. So once they enter the workforce, they experience the usual imposter syndrome, but like, I switch careers, like you don't have that much confidence. Plus with the bias, and it's like you said, sometimes it, it's not really you, it's, you know, the environment or the other person has a bias because you're a minority. So that's really good that they... Uh, prepared you for that it's unfortunate they need to prepare you but that, that because it happens but yeah and can you give some examples of the things that they told you things you might expect I think imposter syndrome that's one I've struggled with the most personally definitely like you said coming from a career where I felt confident and I felt like, yeah, I have these skills, obviously. Anyone can see these skills, you know, like, and then coming into tech where it's not as clear cut as that. And yeah, you're coming entry level position, which is different, especially for an older person. So imposter syndrome is definitely something I've been dealing with. I think I deal with it in a couple ways. So one, I decided that Ada Developers Academy should have an annual conference where we all get together and we can talk about these things and we can say, okay, how are we feeling right now in our careers? What's working? What's not? How have people found success? What does that look like? And I think I just learned this new term, but it's career crafting. So a lot of times you see jobs and you see people around you doing the jobs and you're like, I don't want that for myself. I don't see myself doing those things, being that person. It just doesn't make sense for me. And so it's difficult when you don't have role models, when you don't have things you see that excite you, that you're like, yes, that's my path. I want to want to pursue that. So career crafting where you're like, you know, pick and choose. Like it's a buffet, you know, it's not all or nothing. Like you can make, you can be an engineer and also do things that maybe nourish you in different ways. And so that's what I've really been focusing on. So I started a public speaking group at my company so we can all get together and practice giving technical talks because I know um, my imposter syndrome personally definitely holds me back from speaking in front of a bunch of people, a, a bunch of other technical people, speaking about technical things. I know my vocabulary is different because I didn't, I don't have a CS background. So I 
I think about things differently. I talk about things differently and I know that it's valid and it's right and I understand it, but getting over those confidence barriers is something that I'm working on. So yeah, I've just been trying to make opportunities to get better for myself, you know, with things like um, the Ada Developers Annual Conference and doing a public speaking group at my company and all these things are hopefully going to just keep me keep my eyes open to new opportunities. That's great. That's a great approach. Because also, I mean, I've heard from a lot of people the imposter syndrome never goes away. So yeah, you have to find ways to cope with it, like the speaking group. And me personally, a lot of it is, um, yeah, you give a tech talk, but then it's like, comes the questions. And then sometimes like, am I going to be able to answer it? But then people have told me it's okay if you don't know how to answer it, just follow up later. Like, don't let that block you from speaking and putting yourself out there. Yeah, I love that point because I have also lately been finding myself like it's okay to not know everything. I mean, that's also a blocker that like these people who just have answers to everything, like how could you know all these things? But I think I I, like I want to find a place where I can say I don't know the answer to that. Like maybe we can explore it, you know, and look into it together and kind of putting forth that image of someone who doesn't know everything and, and that's okay. Exactly. Let's talk now about Kubernetes. We're here at KubeCon and I saw you're a certified Kubernetes administrator. What does this mean? So there is a certification exam you can take. The Cloud Native Computing Foundation runs it, I believe. And it is a series of um, debugging exercises and and pretty long exam that should allow you to say, okay, you're certified and you're functioning at a certain level with your Kubernetes expertise. So I took this exam actually when they first launched it. So it was a couple years ago now. So it was brand new and they were actually still, we were kind of working some of the bugs out of the exam itself, which was interesting. And it was a really great experience. I was very intimidated at first. I thought this is something that seems unfeasible to me, but the studying process was great. Actually, we had a little study group in my team at my company. So it was awesome to work with people in, in a different capacity and study for it and prepare for it. And then I just, I learned a lot in the exam itself. And not only did I learn a lot of technical stuff, but I also learned that like, I, yes, I do know a lot about Kubernetes and I can figure these things out. And it was pretty fun at the end of the day to be given these challenges. And, you know, you just have to trust that you can iterate and you can figure it out. And yeah, I definitely recommend people give it a try. In terms of the studying, does the exam come bundled with like, here's, you know, the program or is it just the exam itself? I think there are definitely uh, study format things you can follow now. Like I said, I took it when it first launched. And so there really wasn't anything to go off of. So we we're just reading the docs and going from there. But yeah, I think they have a more structured approach now to what you should be studying. What are some of the reasons why someone should consider getting this certification for Kubernetes? I think it's a good experience. It's also great confidence booster. You know, you, you can really be confident in your own expertise. That's great. It definitely makes you look across the whole scope of Kubernetes. So I think a lot of times people will focus on one aspect of Kubernetes, but by kind of looking more horizontally across the project, you are able to kind of see how everything fits together better. And then additionally, putting it on your LinkedIn definitely gets you returned in service 
searches and people are really looking for experts right now. Yeah, I've heard similar stories where people join, you know, a cloud provider team and the moment they they put it on LinkedIn, they start getting a lot of requests for jobs. Yeah, it's a really big space right now. I want to ask you, well, we already talked about getting certified from Kubernetes. After you finish Ada Developers Academy, like you said, it's they teach you full stack, web development. Was there something in between that you did between Ada and moving on to the cloud computing space and DevOps? There wasn't. It was a super interesting transition. So like I said, Ada sets you up with your internship. So one of the interns for our cohort was the Samsung cloud native computing team. And at the time, the CTO was Bob Weiss. He's since then moved on to Amazon. But he came in and did a presentation for our cohort and talked all about Kubernetes and open source and the Kubernetes community. And at the time, we were brand new to tech. We'd been working with Ruby on Rails for three months, maybe. And so everyone was just like wide eyed, like what on earth is he talking about? And no one wanted to sign up for the internship because we had no experience with anything like that. And I was the first person to raise my hand and sign up for it because I loved the way he talked about the community and open source. And I just saw it as this like huge global force that was super interesting to me. I also think he might've used the phrase plumbers of the internet internet or something like that. So like, it was interesting from this, you know, engineering standpoint of like, how are these things connected? And, you know, what are these invisible forces that are making this tech work behind the scenes? I thought that was really cool. So I was lucky enough to get that internship and just dived in and, you know, had great mentors at Samsung that really were able to, to get me up to speed in this very complicated tech space. Yeah, it took me a while to get a hold of what Kubernetes is, to be honest. And one thing that stands out also is you mentioned, well, a lot of the people, they're new to tech and they're like, I know Ruby, like, why isn't this internship Ruby? Or I don't have a background, I'm not an expert in it. And the thing is, like, this technology is so new, there are rarely any experts. And then there's new people all the time just going to it and onboarding with what appears to be no fear. But yeah, I think that's a really good trait that you have the initiative to just be like, I don't know, but it sounds exciting and just go for it because technology is changing a lot and we don't have experts for some things. And it's just like, it's been around for some technologies, two years, three, five, six, that's not significant, but yes. So that's great. And, and that's interesting that right after the coding bootcamp, were there, I guess, general skills from the Developers Academy that also translated to being able to onboard with Kubernetes? Since you're not using Ruby, but I assume they also prepared you for learning. I think they did a great job of kind of read the docs approach where we were finding the answers for ourselves. So coming into a space where you're absolutely right, like they're really, especially this was, you know, three or four years ago, like there really weren't experts in the space and we were all just collaborating and figuring it out ourselves. I think my skills from my previous job where I was used to finding solutions by networking with other people, like what's working with you? How are you doing that? Oh, how did you build this? So those kind of skills were great to allow me to start networking with a lot of the SIGs and finding people in the community who are working on similar problems. And then also just the community itself being so open to helping and collaborating. And that was a really great experience. Before we finish, 
finish, I want to talk about Two Sigma, which is where you currently work. And it's an investment management firm in New York City that has been using technology in interesting ways since it was founded in the early 2000s. Can you explain in more detail what Two Sigma is? Yeah. Two Sigma is an investment management firm, and we take a scientific method approach to investing. So there's a lot of interesting work done with AI and machine learning, distributed computing to, to do investing. So it's definitely a different approach to investing. What are some examples of insights that we can get from data in this field? One of the classic examples of ways you can derive information from data in terms of finance is if there was, if the temperature went below freezing in Florida, then the orange crop might be lower for that season and the price of orange juice might go up. So that's kind of where you could look at if you had data trends about temperatures in Florida, then you might be able to make some speculation on what would happen with the price of orange juice in the future. So the data we look at is much more complicated than stuff like that. But it's really interesting to think about the way economies work and the way people work and the thing, you know, the things they're building and creating in terms of data points, and then how other data points might affect them, like weather or natural disaster and how this whole thing can come together. All right. Well, Leah, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. So happy to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you.